Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 19. Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the pro wrestling history podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history between 1870 and 1920. My name is Ken Zerman Jr. And over the next 30 or so minutes, we're going to talk about a famous match between the second American heavyweight wrestling champion and one of the early American, or world heavyweight boxing champions, but it was not a mixed martial arts contest, what we would call it in modern terms, but a mixed styles match that they would have called it back then. It was actually a wrestling match, so we'll get into that, but first, to go over the updates, the second episode for this month, which will be released on Monday, February 27th, will be a co-hosted episode I'm arranging right now with my youngest son to get our schedules to coincide, and we're actually going to do a hosted podcast, and we're going to do the hosted podcast on the subject of my next book. So I've decided that I'm going to do a short project that will probably be released in the summer or very early fall, and then I'm going to do another longer book project on a wrestler who wrestled primarily in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but who wrestled some of the more famous shoot uh, contests of the 1920s. But before that, I'm going to do a short uh, project on a 19th century professional wrestler whose career only lasted seven years because, unfortunately for him, he caught tuberculosis, which was an incurable disease in the late 19th century. They called it consumption. And he passed away from consumption. So next week, that'll be the... Or next week. Two weeks from now, that'll be the subject of our podcast. The match that I discovered originally was when I was writing, shooting, or working the history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship last year. And I had seen that Joe Acton who was the second American heavyweight wrestling champion and a very, very skilled catch-as-catch-can wrestler, modern terminology, they call it catch wrestling, had had several matches with famous boxers in the 1880s. One with, with Dr. Bill Miller, who was a not the Bill Miller of the 20th century, but this Dr. Miller was an Australian wrestler and boxer. He did both bare-knuckle boxing and wrestling. And many of the bare-knuckle boxers were actually really good wrestlers in like a Greco-Roman type wrestling. I think the only lower body wrestling you could do in a bare-knuckle, you could trip. So it might look like judo with no jackets, but it was upper body control with a little bit of foot trips uh, thrown in. But in a bare-knuckle match, it would end, the, each round wasn't timed, 
So in the modern era, you think of rounds in boxing, they're three minutes long. So if you have a 10-round bout, you have 10 three-minute rounds. In the 18th, 18th, well, it's true in the 18th century too. In the 1800s and the 19th century, a round ended in traditional bare-knuckle boxing when a fighter was knocked down, took a knee, or was thrown. You could throw your opponent. And you had a certain amount of time to tow, usually about a minute, to return and tow the scratch, which meant you and your opponent were ready to fight again. That's how a round was terminated. So many of the boxers, bare-knuckle boxers, were decent wrestlers, but nowhere near the skill level of a Joe Acton. And then Bob Fitzsimmons, who was a world middleweight boxing champion, a world heavyweight boxing champion, and the first world light heavyweight boxing champion in the 1890s and very uh, first few years of the 20th century, also wrestled Acton. And he was nowhere near the skill level of Dr. Miller when it came to wrestling. But this would have been a big match that would have drawn a lot of interest because you're not just drawing from the wrestling fan pool, you're drawing from the boxing fan pool. It's no different than why today in the modern era, WWE will get a Tyson Fury to take part in one of their cards in some way. Or why they book a Logan Paul to wrestle on their cards because he's got such a big uh, fan following from his celebrity boxing. So the reason you put on a bout like this, even though it's very unevenly matched, is because you want to draw in a bigger pool. You want to make more money. Remember, the whole whether it was contests or whether it was work matches, the whole goal of professional wrestling from its inception in the 1860s and 1870s was to draw as many fans as possible to have them pay as much money as possible to make the gate that much bigger for the wrestlers to split. So in November of 1891, Fitzsimmons agrees to wrestle Joe Acton in San Francisco, where both of them are, are fairly well known, and they are going to reportedly wrestle for a $1,000 purse. It probably was $1,000 with the gates and everything, but as we'll talk about later, that they're not going to have a winner and a, and a loser split. They're going to split it. So usually... Going into this match, Acton was almost always giving up size to his opponents. He was five foot five, and he weighed 155 pounds, and his nickname was the Little Demon. And he was even a little small for the heavyweight era. Heavyweights were not huge in this era, with the exception of William Muldoon, who was six one and between 200 and 220. Most heavyweights were around 175 to 180 pounds. Some a little bit less, like a Farmer Burns was 165. Some a little bit more, like a Tom Jenkins who was 195. But many of your heavyweights were only in the 175, 180 pound, which today would uh, not even be close to uh, heavyweight in wrestling. The junior heavyweights are like 230. And even in boxing and MMA, you're looking at middleweights and cruiserweights and boxing, middleweights and MMA. So 
he would have been a small guy today for sure, but he was even a, a small guy in the 1800s. However, Fitzsimmons is not huge either. He is tall. He's six foot one, but at the time he only weighed 148 pounds, and I think at his heaviest as a heavyweight, he weighed like 175 pounds. So he's not particularly large either. And the gulf between the two of them and wrestling skill is enormous. So you're probably asking, how on earth did they get people to come and watch this match? Because for the same reason, I did not bother spending any money to watch Conor McGregor fight Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match. Conor McGregor is a world-class athlete. He has very good hands. For a MMA fighter, he has great boxing. But to fight a boxer who's been boxing since he was five years old, he's nowhere near Floyd Mayweather's level. But they have to hype this fight and make the fans think that Conor McGregor had a chance. Well, it's the same thing here. They, they tried to hype the uh, match and to maybe generate a little bit of gambling as well. Acton actually drops the first fall to Fitzsimmons which would be akin to me pinning Teddy Reiner in a judo match. So uh, Teddy Reiner just put his name into YouTube, and you'll get a whole bunch of his judo competitions. He's an Olympic, I think he's an Olympic gold medalist. I know he's a world champion several times over. One of the most decorated judoka of all time, uh, and he's the leader of the French judo team. So me at 5'10 and 230 in shape, that would be pinning Teddy Reiner that's akin to Fitzsimmons pinning Acton. But they need to make the fans believe that Fitzsimmons has a chance and maybe they can get some gambling going as well. So after Acton drops the first fall to Fitzsimmons after about 10 minutes, they come back out for the second fall. And to start the second fall, Acton grabs Fitzsimmons in a front face lock and squeezes it a little bit. So in wrestling, it's called a front face lock. In jiu-jitsu, it's the guillotine choke. It's just a front face choke is what it is. And he squeezes it a little bit and then lets go. And I wondered when I was reading that, if that was just to let Fitzsimmons know, hey, if you decide to get cute and try to double cross me, remember, I can still hurt you really badly. And that is not an unfounded fear. In, I think it was 1908, but I'm doing this off of memory. It's somewhere in that vicinity. Stanley Ketchell is the middleweight champion of the world. And the great Jack Johnson is the heavyweight champion of the world. And they've pretty much cleaned out their divisions. There's really no one in the middleweight or the heavyweight divisions that's seen as a challenge to them. So they decide the biggest money fight available is for the two of them to fight each other. They agree beforehand that they're not going to try to win. They're just going to fight to a draw. And this is an era where if you fought to a draw a lot of times, it was a draw. They, they would not allow judging like they do in the modern era. So the newspapers would say who they thought won. It was called the newspaper decision era. But official judging was not allowed. And that was to, because a lot of the commissions and that were fearful that the gambling interest or organized crime or both 
would affect the outcomes of bouts. So they would not allow judges or referees' decisions. Either the fighter knocked his opponent out or they went to a draw. So Ketchell and Johnson agree they're going to just fight to a draw. It'll be a declared a draw after 12 rounds. And everything is going fine till about the 8th or ninth round when Ketchell, who had a mean streak every bit as bad as Evan Strangler Lewis in wrestling or a Frank Gotch or a Jack Dempsey later, decides he's got an opportunity to win the heavyweight championship of the world and hits Jack Johnson, I think it was with a left hook. If you want to see this, because they have this clip of the fight on YouTube, they may have the whole fight, but I definitely know they have where Ketchell tries to double-cross Johnson. And he hits Johnson with, I think it was a left hook, so hard it actually staggers Johnson and he puts one hand out on the, the mat for a knockdown. It's the first time he'd been knocked down in forever. But he didn't knock him out. <laughs> Jack Johnson stands up, hits him with an uppercut that knocks out two of his teeth. Two of his uh, Ketchell's teeth were embedded in Johnson's glove. And Ketchell is out for the count. So <laughs> Johnson is the winner of the, this fight. You know, <laughs> Don't double-cross the champ if you can't actually knock him out. Well, you could have had the same situation here. Acton had just given Fitzsimmons the first uh, fall. So if he allowed himself to get in a vulnerable position again that Fitzsimmons could take advantage of, Fitzsimmons could legitimately defeat him. So I wondered if that was just a little reminder of, hey, I can hurt you really badly if I want to, so you better not try any cute stuff. So after releasing the pressure on him, he takes Fitzsimmons, rolls him onto the mat, and... Fitzsimmons rolls for several minutes, but after about four minutes, of it, he's exhausted and Acton pushes his shoulders down to the mat for the second fall. So now the match is tied at one fall apiece. Acton still wants to make the bout look good, so he rushes out to start the third fall and puts a leg twist on Fitzsimmons to try to spin him to the mat. But Fitzsimmons pulls his leg out of the grapevine. Now, I'm going to tell you Acton let him pull his leg out of the grapevine. Because he wouldn't have got it out if Acton didn't want him to. Acton then used a neck hold to turn Fitzsimmons to the mat. And Fitzsimmons bridged to prevent Acton from pinning him. Traditional wrestling defense. Acton pushed Fitzsimmons over onto his right side then. And Fitzsimmons is kind of stuck in this position but Acton can't actually get him down to the mat. So they're kind of stuck in this position for several minutes until finally Acton snakes his arm around one of uh, Fitzsimmons' arm and shoulder and is able to leverage him down for the third fall at 12 minutes and 34 seconds. I think they just stretched that out to make it look good for the patrons. And as I said, I didn't read a whole lot about gambling, so I don't know how much gambling occurred on this match. You would have really had to be a sucker to think that Fitzsimmons had any real chance after at, against Acton. But you never know. People, people do strange things. So one of the things about this match is Acton was pretty much 
inactive at this point of his career. He had lost the American Heavyweight Championship to Evan Strangler Lewis in 1887 in a, a work match. And he had been he had been at, inactive before that, and he was really inactive after 1887. So really, he would only come out and wrestle matches with people when he thought that they would be very lucrative. So this match had to be a lucrative match for him to travel from Philadelphia to take part in this match with Fitzsimmons. Uh, Fitzsimmons, it's no harm to his career at all. He would win the World Middleweight Championship three years later. And then in 1897, he fought James J. Jeffries, who was the second heavyweight champion uh, who only fought in glove contests. So there was a transition in the 1880s in boxing from bare-knuckle fighting, which was illegal almost everywhere, to glove contests, which were legal in some places. They were still, prize fighting was still illegal in many venues, but glove contests would be allowed. And John L. Sullivan, who won the championship bare-knuckle and who fought several big bare-knuckle matches in 1889 after defeating Jake Kilrain in a... Again, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I want to say the fight in New Orleans between him him and Jake Kilrain in 1889 went 75 rounds. He said he would no longer fight bare-knuckle rules or in bare-knuckle contests. He would only fight... Marcus de Queensberry gloved contest from that point on. And he lost his championship a few years after that to James J. Jeffries. I'm sorry, <laughs> Gentleman Jim Corbett. James J. Jeffries was his protege. And then in 1897, Jeff or, uh, Corbett defended the championship. You'll see why I'm getting these names confused. Corbett defended against Bob Fitzsimmons, who defeated him for the heavyweight championship. And then two years later, James J. Jeffries, who had been Gentleman Jim Corbett's protege, training partner, sparring partner, defeats Bob Fitzsimmons. After Bob Fitzsimmons loses to Jeffries, the heavyweight championship, a lot of people thought, well, you know, this will be the tail end of his career. He actually wins the light heavyweight championship, the first light heavyweight championship, in 1901. And he would hold it for a couple years. So the, this match didn't hurt Fitzsimmons in any way. It just put a little bit more money in his pocket. And it didn't hurt Acton. It put a little money in his pocket. And then he went back to Philadelphia and continued promoting dog races and uh, foot races between uh, track runners. And that that was a much more lucrative pastime for him than professional wrestling. Professional wrestling doesn't really start to get big until the time of Frank Gotch. You draw a few crowds of a couple thousand people in the 1890s, but through most of the 1880s, you're still talking about crowds in the hundreds, not crowds in the thousands. And most of the wrestlers had sidelines that they did. What Even into the early 20th century, that happened a lot of times, but... Definitely, most professional wrestlers did not make their living strictly from professional wrestling. Farmer Burns, early on, was training and wrestling, and that's how he supplemented his income. 
So he was one of the first that was able to make a full-time living from wrestling, but it wasn't just from wrestling competitions. It was from training wrestlers and from for also, unfortunately, and this is where professional wrestling gets some of its terrible reputation. He also worked a number of gambling schemes with some of his uh, trainees and former opponents. They would go into a town and pull some gambling schemes. I've written about several of those on KenzermanJr.com, and I will link to those in this episode. Um, if you go to KenzermanJr.com slash episode 19, you'll see the show notes there, and I'll have a link to at least one of his gambling schemes in that. So that was the main topic for this week. I wanted to... So I didn't do a review of any modern wrestling or even any older wrestling this week because I had seen something on Peacock that wasn't from the WWE, but it was a documentary they had done on Teddy Hart, who is the grandson of Stu Hart, and he is the son of BJ Annis and Georgia Hart, one of Stu Hart's daughters, and It's a fascinating three episodes on how someone can be very charismatic, very dynamic, and very manipulative because he has these students and he gets several women to show up on his uh, documentary that this documentary filmmaker is making because they think they're going to be famous because being on this documentary with someone who has not been with a major promotion probably in 15 years. I mean, he was on MLW as their middleweight champion, so he got a little bit of exposure, but not many people watch MLW. And he was fired from many of the promotions he's worked for because of his erratic and uncontrolled behavior. And... This documentary kind of shows how people can fall in and be manipulated by promises of fame or promises. I mean, he has not been with a major promotion in 15 years at least. He does have some talent, but he's someone, he dresses oddly. Um, He acts like he's a big star, but he hasn't been with a major promotion in 15, 17 years. Nobody's seen him on national TV or even probably local TV uh, very often. Yet he has this coterie of people that follow behind him that think he's going to train them to be the next great professional wrestler or he's going to make them a star on his documentary or he's going to make them a star as a valet and manager and wrestler in the ring. And it's fascinating and incredibly depressing uh, at the same time that there are people out there that can still pull off these. And they show a lot of the things that happened. He is not directly responsible for. He didn't cause a lot of the things. But being around him put these people in the situations they were in where bad things happened. And he was directly responsible for some of the bad things that happened to his, uh, I believe, ex-wife and girlfriend. So it's a, it's a, if you just go to Peacock and you type in Teddy Hart, I'm sure the documentary will pop right up. 
It's uh, three episodes. It doesn't take very long to watch. But you, you'll get... The Teddy Hart documentary shows the seamier side of professional wrestling, even in the modern day. WWE has tried to take a lot of that out, and I think AEW is trying to do the same thing. But it had it or, its origins in the carnivals, and it attracted a lot of disreputable people over the years. I've heard it said many, many times. There are a lot of characters in professional wrestling that could not have survived in any other venue. You know, they would have ended up in jail. They'd have been run out of town. You know, they would have, some of them would have been the original snake oil salesman from the 1870s. And you do have that seamier side uh, to the business, industry, sport, whatever you want to call it. And that existed even back in the 1870s and the 1920s, maybe just as much, if not more so. Because you had a lot of the challenge carnival matches where if somebody was getting the better, they would waylay them behind a tent and stuff like that. There was a lot of this, but I think some of the more disreputable things that went on in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and the early 20th century were the gambling schemes that these wrestlers pulled on unsuspecting people. They're basically stealing their money under false pretenses. Today we call it fraud. Um, also and called theft by deceit. But you're basically stealing the money out of people's pockets because they think they're watching a contest and they're betting on the outcome of that contest and they're working the match to make sure the bets go in their favor. So they'll get somebody who should not even be able to lace up the shoes of a champion and they'll get a fluke, in quotation marks, victory in 10 seconds and win the fastest fall bet. Well, everybody and their brother is going to bet on the champion. Nobody's going to think this schlub is going to come in there and pin the champion, yet it happens. And that that's the disreputable things that happened back then. But you see these characters in the sport, industry, business, however you want to term it. And this Teddy Hart documentary, unfortunately, illustrates more of that. There's a lot of hangers-on in this that are not involved in professional wrestling in a mainstream way, in any way at all. But you can see these seamy, disreputable characters hanging on to the fringes and taking advantage of a lot of people. So that is it for this episode of It Was Almost Real. Next week, or two weeks from now, I keep saying next week, two weeks from now, on Monday, February 27th, we'll release the co-hosted episode and we will be talking about the first Japanese professional wrestler in the United States, Sorokichi Matsada. So come back to listen to his fascinating story of his seven-year professional wrestling career. And with that, I'll close up the show and tell everybody, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.